Hello, family. You're tuned in to The Real Rx, a platform created by five uniquely talented physicians with one main mission to educate and empower our communities to do and feel better. Here is where we have real talk about trending health topics and your problems or issues in health and even the healthcare system. We'll take you behind the brains of an ophthalmologist, family doctor, ER doctor, OBGYN, and healthcare advocate to discuss the real things that ail you. Join us for another episode of The Real Rx. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of The Real Rx. We are really excited to talk with you about this topic. I'm warning you now, it's a little bit controversial. So, you know, bear with us, but it's something that we think is incredibly important and we all have very strong feelings about it and maybe you do too. But before we get started, let me have the ladies of The Real Rx introduce themselves. So why don't we start with Dr. Kimberly? Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Kimberly. I'm an ER doctor, and I help you to stay safe, healthy, and more importantly, thrive outside of the doors of the ER. Dr. Felicia. Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Felicia Sumner. I'm a board-certified family medicine doc and wellness strategist. I help break down the massive wall between doctors and patients so you can live your best life because you deserve to be well, whole, energized, and loving life. Dr. San. Hey, it's Dr. Sand. It is your board-certified obstetrician gynecologist who uses social media to help women navigate through pregnancy, labor, delivery, and postpartum. And I also help overworked mommies achieve balance and mommyhood nirvana. And I am your host for today, Dr. Nicole. I am a board-certified pediatrician, a private health advocate, and the CEO of Your GPS Doc. I help family caregivers do three things, relieve the overwhelm, reclaim their time, and ensure that their family members have appropriate and effective health care. So we are missing Dr. Anika today. She is living her best life in Hawaii. And so shout out to Dr. Anika, who is our board-certified ophthalmologist and the CEO of MD. So she will be back with us next week. All right, so we have left you in suspense long enough. Let's go ahead and get into today's topic, which is you are not the doctor. You are not. So what are we talking about, guys? We are talking about mid-level providers, okay? And when we say mid-level providers, we are referring to nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. And let me just be clear from the very beginning, because I'm sure that we have some NPs and PAs in our listening audience. This is not an episode to bash anyone. This is not an episode uh, where we are, you know, trying to uh, be negative. However, we are five physicians and we do have strong opinions about what is happening with mid-level providers. And really the purpose of today's episode, as always, is to educate our listening audience. So we just want to make sure that you all understand the differences between physicians and mid-level providers. And then you guys are smart. You can make your own decisions, okay? But we want to make sure that you understand because we all feel that there um, is a lot of misinformation floating around and we would not be doing our jobs 
if we didn't help educate you all. And this is the real RX. So we're going to keep it real. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. But I do want to start by saying that we, um, this is not a bashing session. This is really an educational session. So having said that, let me just explain a little, just briefly before I turn it over to the ladies, um, just some statistics. And so right now it's estimated that there are approximately 250,000 nurse practitioners that are licensed to practice in the United States. And then just to compare that, it's estimated that there are about 115 to 120,000 physician assistants who are licensed um, in the United States. And then, you know, if you look at doctors, there's over 1.1 million um, licensed physicians in the US. So that's just to give you an, a general understanding in terms of the numbers. Now, in terms of um, the training, we're, we're gonna get more into this, but I'm just gonna give you a very broad overview. One of the main things that comes up in conversations about this topic are, really has to do with the difference in training. And so um, I just wanna state from the beginning that there is a broad difference. There's a vast difference in the training um, between physicians, nurse practitioners, and physicians assistants. And just as an example, um, those of us who are physicians have 20,000 plus hours of training, okay? That's by the time we finish um, residency, over 20,000 hours of actual patient contact hours. And in comparison, um, nurse practitioners generally have around 1,000. Now, some of them may have a little bit more depending on whether they've decided to specialize but generally we're talking about a thousand hours. And the reason that that's important, and we're gonna talk about this a little bit later, has to do with the scope of practice and what physicians are allowed to do versus what nurse practitioners are allowed to do versus physician assistants. So just keep that number in your head as we um, you know, proceed with our discussion, okay? 20,000 versus 1,000, okay? So I think I'm gonna start with Dr. Felicia. So Dr. Felicia, as the primary care physician um, in this, in the real RX, I'd love to hear your thoughts regarding your experiences with uh, working with nurse practitioners and or physician assistants, um, maybe supervising NPs or PAs, and just kind of share a little bit with us about your experience and your feelings about uh, mid-level providers and how that relates to, you know, patient care? Yeah, sure. In the primary care world, um, you know, we have a, a broad range of the types of services that we can provide in family medicine. So my experience has been um, in the clinic or, you know, office, also working in a hospital, also um, doing some work in the emergency room when I worked in a very rural area in the South. And in all those experiences, I had the opportunity to work with mid-level providers. And uh, to be fully transparent, some were great experiences and others were somewhat gut-wrenching. And part of it has to do with, like you said, Dr. Nicole, um, the level of training, meaning that the hours of experience are very different, but also um, in all reality, every school is capable of training differently. And so now, unfortunately, there are some mid-level providers who are getting 
their degrees online and have very little patient contact, possibly even less than the thousand that you just mentioned, um, because there's not quite as great oversight as there is with regards to physicians who train. Um, I've had some great experiences, typically, you know, being able to collaborate with mid-level providers, um, you know, when we have an understanding of our relationship that my training is superior in a lot of ways. And so um, mid-level providers, uh, nurse practitioners, PAs that I've worked with, um, when they have that understanding um, that, you know, there are some gaps in their training and experience that the physician can help fill, then things go very well. Um, but unfortunately, there are a lot of cases, especially now in primary care, where the physician's um, position, to some extent, is kind of being threatened. Um, there are a lot of patients, even my own loved ones, who are seen by nurse practitioners or a PA and assume that they saw the doctor. And to me, that's not okay. Um, I think that it's very important for anyone who sees a provider that they know whether or not their provider is a doctor um, or not, because you should have a certain level of trust in the amount of knowledge they have of your disease, your potential condition, what your complications are. Um, in all reality, when it comes down to the kinds of um, diseases that doctors are able to diagnose, most of the time we won't know what's going on unless we've seen it before. And that's the jewel that we get from training and sleepless nights and, you know, that 20,000 plus hours of being exposed to so many different things, um, you know, that we're able to catch in the medical world, we call it zebras, which are like the really rare stuff um, that you might not think of right away. And unfortunately, um, for providers that have only had, you know, a thousand hours or so of exposure, you are often only thinking of the bread and butter and the more complicated or off the wall things um, might be missed. And sometimes those complicated things are emergencies. Um, and that's what can be very concerning. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. I'll just piggyback a little bit before we move into some of the other specialties. So you guys know I'm a pediatrician and I'm also old. <laughs> so um, back when I was, uh, when I first started practicing right out of residency in 2000, um, as far as I know, there weren't, I don't think the doctorate degree was available um, for nurse practitioners. And if it was, I didn't know any who were practicing as, you know, with the doctorate degree. And so basically, um, you know, the nurse practitioners uh, had four years of college like we did. And then they did a master's program, which is typically two years. And I worked in a primary care setting in a very large HMO where, like you stated, Dr. Felicia, you know, we had a very wonderful relationship. And we had, in our group, we had two pediatric nurse practitioners and we had, I don't know, maybe eight um, pediatricians. And it was very clear, you know, they knew their lane, just like you said. And I mean, they were very good. They were very experienced. In fact, they had more experience than I did, you know, being right out of residency. But regularly, they would come to me, you know, for consultations, and they would bounce things off of me. Typically, if there was a more complicated patient, or maybe if they had seen a patient and, you know, they had instituted a treatment and maybe the patient didn't get better and they were back, they would come talk to me and we would, you know, literally have a little brainstorm and talk about, 
some of the other things that they need to consider. And so, you know, I had uh, a very good experience early on in my medical career. And so I have really just been kind of flabbergasted by the change between when I first started and what's going on now. And, and like you said, yeah. Dr. Felicia, you know, they, um, you know, some mid-level providers now are able to practice independently. And with this doctorate degree, it is extremely confusing. And honestly, I'm just going to say it. I feel like in some cases, I think it's intentionally confusing. You know, I think some people out here are intentionally calling themselves Dr. So-and-so um, to really, you know, make patients think that they are physicians. And I think that when you wear a long white coat and you open up a practice and when you put Dr. So-and-so on the door, the average patient walking through that door is going to assume that you are a physician. They are going to assume that you went to medical school and that you either have an MD or a DO behind your name. And so, you know, we didn't have that issue when I started practicing, but the patients were very clear who was the doctor, who was the nurse practitioner. And I will also say that some of them chose the nurse practitioner as their primary um, physician, I mean, as their primary care provider. And we had no problem with that, but they chose that knowing exactly who was seeing them, knowing what type of training they had, and knowing that there was literally a physician in the building, right, you know, literally the office next door that could be uh, available if necessary. And funnily enough, Dr. Nicole, just to, uh, when you were mentioning, you know, people in long white coats, um, they assume that they're the doctor. I'm sure that I'm not the only one in the room um, with this experience, but as a black female, um, funnily enough, especially now in this climate, I can wear a long white coat and call myself a doctor, and it's assumed that I mean doctor nurse. Um, mm. so it gets very confusing for sure. Yeah, that's a really, yeah, I've been mistaken for everything but a doctor. Um, Dr. Kimberly, so you're, you're in the ER, and you probably have experiences working with both nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, mid-level providers. Yeah, um, I always wanna echo kind of what you said. Honestly, for the vast majority of my experience, um, it has been positive. So I'm probably the newest physician out of all of us in, in the real RX. And so I am um, been practicing independently by myself for this is my second year. I just finished residency last year. So um, so last month would be literally the start of my second year after graduation. Um, but I say that to say that I've actually have been able to learn from mid-levels, meaning PAs more specifically. Um, before I settled at the hospital where I'm at now, I worked in a kind of rural part of Wisconsin. I say kind of rural because y'all know I'm from Wisconsin and that area is, I guess it's rural, but it's really not because I grew up going there from time to time. But anyways, um, it was a very small hospital, like meaning the ER was only 12 beds. The hospital that I had trained in was like 80 beds. Um, I had no specialty backup, meaning if someone was super sick, I needed to ship them to another place. And usually where I did my training, patients were getting shipped to us because we you know, were the highest level and we took care of extremely sick people. But I said that to say that I had um, what I like to say, very basic bread and butter 
emergency medicine patient come in. And after so long of three years of being highly trained, I can take care of a critically ill patient with my eyes closed almost. Sometimes it's different to shift your mind to go into more of the needing things, but not super sick, et cetera, and so forth. So I had to, um, this patient splashed some, um, oh, what did they splash in their eye? I can't remember. They splashed something in their eye. And when I checked the pH of it, I noticed that it was abnormal. So I had irrigated his eye, meaning, guys, I washed it out with water, water, water. And I checked it again, and it hadn't budged. And the problem with that is, is that if your pH of your eye isn't completely neutral, you can actually, like, lose your eye because of the severe damage of the chemical. So we needed to do what was called a Morgan lens, which is something that we put in your eye after numbing it to help like water continuously to flush it out. Well, I have done ophthalmology. I'm not an ophthalmologist like Dr. Anika, but I've spent time with ophthalmologists for certain cases like this, i.e. emergencies, but I had never put in a, a Morgan lens. So it just so happened I had a PA on shift with me and she had over 10 years of experience. She had worked in that hospital and other kind of rural um, ERs and definitely knew how to do it. She showed me how to do it. So I say that to say is that even though there's a difference in training, there are still things that we can learn from each other as a team. Mm -hmm. And the basis of this conversation today is that we are advocating for team-based care, meaning at the end of the day, it's going to be the physician's decision, but at the same time, we're not completely oblivious to what mid-levels, nurse practitioners, PAs, and then in San's case, um, uh, midwives have to say, but we need to work together in order to to appropriately care for the patient. Because my experience, like you said, Dr. Nicole, is uh, superior. I've had countless hours of nights in the hospital taking care of ICU patients and in the ER dispositioning people, seeing people, et cetera, and so forth. And that's way more than somebody with a um, with a master's level degree or just a different model of training is going to have. So as long as the physician is at the lead, I think that patients will have safe care. But the thing of it is, is that we have to have physicians at the helm of the ship. So um, otherwise, like I said, I've seen things go very wrong. Um, I also work now in an area where you guys know I'm like right outside of, Me I live in Memphis, but now I'm working like right outside of Memphis. And it's very rural, kind of like everywhere else around our area. So we get a lot of patients transferred from pretty small rinky-dink hospitals. And what's dangerous is, is there's no physician there. You may just walk into an ER in a rural place, meaning rural, meaning like 100 miles outside of Memphis, which is, I can go into Arkansas, I can go to Mississippi, I can go deeper into Tennessee, but there may not be a physician on staff. So you may That's need- That's crazy. I'm sorry yes. to love you. That is freaking crazy. And it's happening not just here. It's happening in Illinois. Um, you know, you go deep west, like your Wyoming's, your North Dakotas, your South Dakotas, your Idaho's, um, parts of Iowa, things like that. And y'all know I'm from the Midwest, so I'm not 
I'm not beating up on the Midwest and the actual West. But in the middle of the United States, there's just not a lot of physicians. Physicians don't live there. We just just don't. The vast majority of people in the United States live on the coasts with a spattering, like in the, you know, in the Southern region, but a spattering of us do live in these rural areas, but there's nowhere near um, enough physicians for that need. So um, the nurse practitioner lobby, I will say that, has mainly um, stepped in to fill the, quote, the physician gap for that area so that somebody will be able to see some healthcare provider, but not necessarily a physician, the most highly qualified and highly trained person there. So anyways, so a lot of times I said that to say, we can get patients that are transferred to us in our ER to stay in our hospital because we are more capable of taking care of sick patients. And the nurse practitioner or PA may be focused on one thing, but there's really something else going on. Like that's the underlying problem. Like for example, there's a patient transferred to me whose heart rate was like 180. They were in this rhythm called atrial fibrillation. You can go into AFib for a bunch of different reasons, but they were so focusing on fixing the heart rate that they completely forgot that the patient was like in a diabetic crisis Mm. and they weren't treating that. So the patient could have died from the diabetic crisis and not the heart rate. But you, but at the end of the day, the patient got to where they needed to go. So it's hard because if you're not in medicine, you don't see these things slipping through the cracks. Yeah. So it's difficult. It's like, it's just difficult. You don't want to bash like we're trying not to do here, but it's just like, oh, it, it can it can be very dangerous. Um, it can be very dangerous if you don't know what you don't know and you're acting independently. And and that and that's a really good statement that you said at the end. If you don't know what you don't know, and I think you know as physicians, we spend three to four plus years in residency training, and that's literally where you find out all the things that you don't know. And I can think of so many instances where, you know, I just didn't know, but I had people above me with more experience who were right there to catch my mistakes and to teach me in the moment. And so it really is scary to know that without that level of training that you can be, you know, out here just taking care of patients. So I want to go to Dr. Sand because Hang I Hang on, can know, I say one more thing before yeah. we go to Dr. Sand? I just want to say, so yeah, that's the difference, I think, is that when we spend these thousands of hours in training, it's that we are we have been supervised, but more importantly, we've been exposed. Yes. More people, like, you learn the most when you see many, many patients, and there is a clinical gestalt, as we say in medicine, but gut I like feeling, to call it, y'all. <laughs> uh, yes, I, basically, my spidey sense, my gut. My Holy yes. Ghost for those who are saved over here. <laughs> but it's like my Holy Ghost tell me, uh-uh, something's not right. Like I can just talk to a patient and like, I wish y'all could see my face, but it's just like. <laughs> uh, she has her head turned to the side. Yeah, y'all. it's just like, um, something's not all the way curling over. And that gut instinct will prompt you to do something that, on the surface, everybody's like, well, why would you do that? Yes. It's like, no, I've seen this too many times. I've seen patients that, you know, look like this and do that. Let's just check one other thing 
and may or may not end up being mm-hmm. right. But at the same time, you're, you're taking that extra step to make sure that the patient is safe because you listen to your clinical good. So I agree. And you can only get that with lots and lots of experience. That's, that's just the only way. So Dr. San, our OBGYN, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts because I know that you have a very close working relationship with your midwives who you love to death. And so I, I think love you bring a very, yeah. So I really, let's get your perspective on mid-level providers, specifically as it relates to midwives. So my perspective of um, mid-level providers um, is there. They it's a time and a place for everything, and I think that they work very well if they have a supervisor over them. Um, because, like the lady said, it's a, so. Just to give an example, in order for a midwife to actually pass midwifery school, and I am talking about a certified um, nurse midwife. So these are men and women who have actually gone to undergraduate school went to nursing school, and then went to midwifery school. So they are highly educated and highly trained. But in order for them to be a midwife, I'm just going to ask the ladies, how many deliveries do you think, you know, would qualify you to at least be an expert in deliveries? I mean, Hmm. what do y'all think? Gosh. I'm going to say 500. 500. What do you say, um, Dr. Felicia? For a midwife, maybe a hundred. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Okay, and I'm gonna go in that green and say two hundred, but I have a feeling you about to say something like fifty. So, in order for midwives, um, the average for them to actually graduate is forty. Forty? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! At one of my hospitals, I'm not even exaggerating. In my training, I am not over exaggerating when I say that. At one of my hospitals that I actually trained at, we could do 11 C-sections in a day and like 10 to 15 vaginal deliveries in a day. Or I mean, even in family medicine, which most family medicine doctors are not delivering babies any longer, um, I'm pretty sure we have, to, I think the minimum in most residencies is 40 deliveries for us to even be able to like leave residency and never have intentions of delivering a baby ever again. Right. Well, for people who plan on delivering babies, you know, as a career, they only have to be four. Oh, Jesus. So, you know, I just want you to keep that in mind when, you know, you're looking for, you know, a midwife who might have just graduated or a midwife who is out there practicing independently. You know, when people try to, you know, compare to say that an OBGYN, you know, is just the same as a, you know, as a midwife. We're not. I, I could do 40 deliveries in a week in residency. And my residency was five years. I did four year. I did one year of internship and then four years of straight OBGYN. Four years. I did normal labor and delivery um, just in my residency. Your first year was just on labor and delivery from sunup to sundown. That's just what you did. You might do a little bit of GYN, but it was mainly OB. So I want y'all to understand that when I graduated, um, I had thousands of deliveries. I did. And it was C-sections and um, vaginal deliveries. So, you know, I have a love for midwives, but I have a love for midwives who actually, you know, know their training and know their lane very well and who actually, you know, supervise or work with um, a physician. I love my midwives. They are not cowgirls. I'm not saying cowboys just because I don't have any male um, midwives, but I did train with one and we call them our mid-hubby. Um, but, you know, we have... <laughs> And 
you know, they are phenomenal. I cannot say enough nice words about these women. They know, you know, the abnormal, they know the normal very well, so they can recognize the abnormal. And they do know that I can, it's some abnormals that they just cannot handle. It's nothing they can do with. They call on a physician. We are always there for them. And so that actually, one, adds to their education, and it also adds to the protection of the patient. So I do like certified nurse um, midwives. I don't have any issues with people who actually practice within their lane. But I do have a huge issue with, they're called professional midwives. And these are midwives who have no formal training whatsoever. And I'm not making it up where some of these women literally was a banker one day and the next day they saw a cool delivery on YouTube and decided, well, I'm going to watch 10 more videos on YouTube and now I'm a midwife. Or they trained behind someone who did that. So, you know, the midwife that they're training behind, did, you know, pretty much did that. You know, saw a couple of YouTube videos, might have saw somebody else who, you know, delivered a couple of babies. And they decided, well, I'm going to deliver some babies, so let me train somebody else to deliver a baby. And, you know, if, you, if any of y'all actually follow me on my Facebook and listen to any of my maternity talks, nine times out of ten, a baby is going to fall out. Nine times out of 10, a baby is going to fall out. But obstetrics and gynecology, I guess the obstetrical um, field was not made for the babies that are going to fall out. It is made for the babies who won't come out safely. That is my training. Yes, I know how to deliver a, do a normal delivery. And some people think that, mid, I mean, OBGYNs are not trained for normal. They're, oh, they're just surgical. That is not true. I know normal, like the back of my hand, my God, I can walk, literally, I walked in last night, some flip flaps and deliver a baby. Okay. I can deliver a baby. Um, I did a whole C-section in flip-flaps. I did, y'all, because I forgot my shoes in the car, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to post the picture because my feet were so ashy, but I was like, I'm not going to do the answer. Like that. <laughs> but I can do it very, very well. But what certified midwives and OBGYNs for, we're there for the abnormal. We're for the person who has a shoulder dystocia. We're for the person who has a postpartum you know, hemorrhage. We're for the person who needs a non-emergent or an emergent C-section. So that is our purpose. So as far as, you know, the mid-levels of obstetrics, I, I love them. I, you know, as long as they stay in their lanes and they're very well trained and they have a OBGYN or family physician that does delivery, um, deliveries to actually answer to, then they're safe. They're within their lane. But when it's they're independent, then that gets my blood pressure high, gets my blood boiling because I am, you know, you know, mater maternal mortality in the United States is um, obscenely high. And they add to it. They add to maternal morbidity. They add to fetal and neonatal um, deaths because they don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, so, I mean, that's just my take. Do I like them? I love them as long as they're in their lane. Um, there are some NPs who now do women's health. I'm not really sold on it yet. I'm honestly not sold on it because um, I've my midwives are actually some of them actually are working with NPs, so they're going through our office. And when I see what they're required to do, and then some of them hang up a shingle and say, now I'm a, a gynecologist. And I'm like, girl, like, you just spent a month in my office, and now you're a, a office, you know, gynecologist. Like, I don't expect you to do surgery, but you don't even recognize the abnormal. You don't recognize the pathology. You don't you're going by the guidelines to say, well, you had a pap smear last year, so you don't need a pap smear for three years, but you looking at a service that's actually abnormal and you should do a biopsy on it, but you're just trained by algorithm. So some of those things just, 
So I'm not really sold on it. I'm going to be honest, you know, any of my dying um, NPs that are actually listening, I'm sorry. It's just that, you know, I don't feel like the curriculum is, um, is not standard. It's just not standard. Some of them are for their guide rotation and following midwives. Like some of my midwives are training, you know, guide and that doesn't make sense to me. And some of them are being trained by physicians. And then some people, I'm in this group um, on Facebook, and some people are getting their dying by going to an urgent care for your dying. Oh, gosh. Um, literally, they're following urgent care physicians, and that's their dying hours. So I'm not really sold on um, dying in PJ. I'm just, that's just my humble opinion. And I think you brought up another good point. Is is really, I mean, I think when it, it comes down to, <laughs> largely the standardization or lack thereof of the training program. You know, medical school, yes, there are different medical schools all across the country. Yes, we may argue among ourselves and say my school was better than your school, but at the end of the day, it, our, our, our training is standardized. It's standardized. You cannot, yeah, you cannot graduate from medical school without having done this number of weeks in internal medicine, this number of weeks in general surgery, this yeah. number of weeks in pediatrics, psychiatry, yeah. all. You know, it's standardized. And it's so, standardized. All of um, us have gone through the same hell together. Like, we really yes. have. All of us, every last one of us have dissected an entire cadaver. Exactly. 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 So I there's from a the beginning. standard to it. And with NP school, like I said, I'm in a couple of groups. And when they post, you know, some of these questions that these NP, like, perfect example, an NP um, who's decided that they're now doing NT looked in a person's nose and basically said that they had um, black mold in their nose, which can happen. But the problem with that is that is a medical emergency. That is go to the um, this, um, OR immediately. This person put them on clindamycin and sent them home. Clind okay, and y'all, we know y'all aren't doctors. Let me just what? say clindamycin <laughs> is an antibiotic. Not going to do anything for mold or fungus. Um, no. Okay. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm dead. I'm just, <laughs> I'm deceased. I, ooh, let me, oh, God. Can't, okay. Dr. But they're an NT. They're going around saying that they're an NT, but black mold. And I'm an OBGYN, and I know black mold don't need clindamycin. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I know that don't need clindamycin. So, yeah. So, yeah. But there's no so, so, if right. they were, like, if, it, if NPs, or if you're going to be an ENT NP, then there will, would probably be that you spend this amount of time doing this so you will be able to recognize black mold so you will know how to treat it. But because they are not, there's no standard, they're not taught on it, they have no idea what it is, it's just like, well, I think this is what it is and I think this is going to work, so I'm just going to go with it. Yeah, I completely agree. And you all correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the burden of getting um, the, the rotations that they have to do, you know, the, on, the patient care hours is really on them. I know when I worked at a, a hospital, you know, we would regularly get phone calls from nurse practitioners at some of the local um, colleges and universities saying, hey, I need, you know, X number of hours in pediatrics. Can I come shadow you at the hospital? Can I come shadow you in the nursery? And so like Dr. Sam was saying, you know, that experience can be vastly different if they're shadowing, if they're supposed to get their, you know, newborn nursery experience and they go to a hospital like the one I worked at that did over 10,000 deliveries a year versus a, another hospital that may do 2,500 deliveries a year, that's going to be a very 
different experience. And, and so if you get that limited experience and then you finish and say, I specialize, quote unquote, in pediatrics, I mean, that's just, that's just not cool. So, you know, again, we're, we really aren't here to bash. You know, there are excellent, excellent nurse practitioners. There are excellent physician assistants. And I think all four of us have worked and had the honor of working with those individuals, but we just want you all to be aware that, you know, you need to at least know who you're seeing, what the level of training is, so that if you think something is wrong, if you feel like you're not getting the level of care that you need, if you feel like your problem is not being solved, that you at least know that there's a next step. Dr. Kim, did you have something to say? Yeah, really quick. I'm glad you brought up um, training and shadowing. Um, there is a difference in just really briefly without pontificating. I'm going to try to like run through that. Mm-hmm. Um, so to become a physician, to become a, an MD or a DO or MBBS, depending on if you came outside of the country, um, you need to go through at least four years of medical school, which is after you graduated from undergrad. And then you need to take multiple exams to be qualified to be licensed in the United States and that's while you're in medical school and then in order after you finish in order to practice um, some specialty whether you want to be a pediatrician or a family doctor or an ER doctor OBGYN etc you have to go with to residency and residency is a minimum of three years of training Um, if you are a neurosurgeon it can be up to seven years after you graduate from medical school but those years are highly supervised and you have graduated, graduated level of responsibility, meaning on day one, after you walk out of medical school, you have so many eyes on you, you really can't <laughs> put in an order real good without five people checking over you. And that's, that's real talk. But the more experience you get, um, the more you are able to do things more independently where you're just checking in with your supervising doctor about what's going on. But regardless, there's always a physician who has finished residency and has experience watching over your shoulder. So you, so you hear all these hours, but we spend time assessing patients, you know, talking to them, getting histories, doing physical exam, coming up with plans Um, you know, and implementing those plans and then seeing what actually happens. That's much different than what happens um, with people that go into nurse practitioner school um, or graduate school. So a lot of times you've heard us saying shadowing, you need shadowing experience. So just watching someone do something versus you actually doing it yourself is two completely different things. Mm -hmm. So I, you can see me, let's say, put in a central line for if you guys out there that are not medical, which is, uh, you know, a procedure to put in a very huge IV in one of your main veins in the body. You can see me do it. and You see me throw it in in about 10 minutes from start to finish. But that doesn't mean that you can do it. Mm-hmm. You may have seen me do et cetera st- steps, you know, just to do it. But that's fine. And what happens if I have a complication? Like I've done X amount of these procedures to know if this isn't going right, then move my hand this way or put the patient in that position or et cetera and so forth. So just shadowing, which is what a lot of nurse practitioners have is not, it's not equivalent. 
So a lot of times they may say, well, I was a nurse for five years, 10 years before I went to nurse practitioner school, but that's still not the same thing. You were a nurse, which means you implemented the plan that the physician put forth. You were not personally assessing the patient and coming up with a medical treatment plan for that patient. It's two different, completely different ball, ball games. What I will say about PAs though, is that they are trained in the medical model, which I call it, quote, abbreviated medical school. They do what we do in four years and maybe about two, give or take a few months. But they're trained in the same way where they learn, you know, rigorous, you know, science. And then they go into clinicals and learn how to see patients. And then they are, they're independent. But they are also trained, or not independent, then they are also trained to work under physicians. That's the name. They are Correct. physicians assistant. So they are always tied to a doctor at any point, but at no point is shadowing, meaning you know what the heck you're doing. You just watch somebody for X amount of hours do what they know how to do. I completely agree. Dr. Felicia, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I did just want to touch on um, the present situation of like what it really means for and, and a nurse practitioner um, or a PA, et cetera, to collaborate with a physician, especially for nurse practitioners, because we mentioned um, in a number of states now, they can practice independently. Um, you know, they can hang a shingle and open their own practice and no doctor has to sign over them or sign with them. Um, but then there are a number of states where they do still have to quote unquote collaborate with a physician the physician has to sign off on their charts. And I think that there's a false impression, um, sad to say, that even in the states where nurse practitioners have a collaborating physician, that, you know, there's a doctor in the room next door that, you know, will be able to um, rescue them if they find themselves in, you know, an iffy or compromising position. And unfortunately, that's really not the case. Um, I was mentioning um, to my friends here earlier that I've gotten a number of job offers to sign off as collaborating physician for eight plus um, nurse practitioners at one time, which means that I could, you know, sign off on hundreds of charts a day um, saying that I agree with the nurse practitioner's plan. And let's be honest that in all reality, that's darn near impossible um, if a physician is really paying attention and, you know, doing the best for that patient who is being seen to read through 100 charts and do that patient justice. Um, and there are offers for, um, you know, a larger sum of money where doctors could sign off on 20 nurse practitioners in a day. Um, which means hundreds of charts. So um, my largest concern even comes along with that, um, that when, like I said, there are a lot of fantastic um, nurse practitioners, PAs, midwives, et cetera, out there, um, especially when they understand kind of where their deficiencies are. Um, but it's really dangerous when you don't um, or when you don't pick something up because the physician is not often in the room next door and they might not be paying as much attention to the chart as we would hope. Absolutely. 
So, you know, I, I hope that we have given you um, a, a relatively unbiased, but maybe slightly biased uh, <laughs> opinion. Uh, and really, like I said, we just want to make sure that you all understand. We want to make sure that you have the information so that you can make an informed decision. Like we said, there are some circumstances where it is very appropriate to receive care from a mid-level provider. Um, but I guess if I put my health advocate hat on for a second, you know, my advice to those of you who are listening is just to make sure that you know who you're seeing. You know, if someone walks in the room and they say, I'm Dr. So-and-so, you know, you could very politely say, are you a physician? Um, and it's okay, you know, and if, they, if they're not, that's fine too, but at least you understand. I, I, the, what, what bothers me the most about this today's climate is that there are patients who are receiving care from people who they think are physicians, and, and indeed they are not. And I think that, you know, we really need to make sure that that is extremely clear and that you all are able to make an informed decision. Um, quickly before we go, you know, we can just talk really briefly about there are um, other providers. So, you know, we have chiropractors um, who also, you know, they, they are, they have a doctor of what, is it chiropractic medicine, I think? And I'll be honest, y'all, I don't know what their training is. I will say one quick thing. I'm going to be very honest and say that I was one of these people who totally poo-pooed chiropractic medicine until my behind found myself barely able to move my neck uh, about a year and a half ago. And I would not, probably wouldn't be here with you. Well, I'm not, I don't mean I'll be dead, but I mean, I don't know where I would be if I had not found the services of my chiropractor who I still see periodically. Um, and so again, for some conditions, you know, I think a chiropractic doctor is very appropriate. In my case, I had some narrowing in my spine and a bulging disc. And I went to one that I'm still not all for the cracking and all that stuff. That's just me. But she did some other types of adjustments that really helped maintain my um, health when it comes to my cervical spine. So, you know, again, we're not saying that chiropractors shouldn't exist. But as a pediatrician, I can also say that I've seen some ridiculous stories in the newspapers um, and online about chiro. I think I just recently saw one about some chiropractor practicing telling, you know, new moms that they should bring their newborns to him to like do adjustments. And, you know, we, we in pediatrics, none of us feel that that is um, appropriate. You know, a baby is still developing and I can't even begin to think about all of the potential damage that can happen. So, uh, and then Dr. Anika isn't here with us, but I'm sure she would have a lot to share about optometrists. So again, you know, optometrists, are wonderful, you know, they have been trained and they um, absolutely can perform eye exams. They can, you know, prescribe glasses and they can diagnose many eye conditions, but they are different than ophthalmologists, which are medical doctors who have gone to medical school, who have done residencies. Some of them have done fellowship and they are surgeons. So Dr. Anika actually performs eye surgery and optometrist is not able to do that. So at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about who's better, who's worse, but it's just understanding that we all have a unique scope of practice. We all have unique training and we are not equal. I mean, that's really the, the purpose of, you know, the title, you are not the doctor. You know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it really is to let you all know that we are not equal. You, I mean, there is no, I don't, no matter how you cut it, 
doctors and mid-level providers are not equal. And unfortunately, the health insurance companies, the hospital systems, they are out here trying to pull the wool over you all's eyes. And because nurse practitioners generally uh, have a lower salary, there is absolutely a move in the healthcare industry in the United States toward nurse practitioners. And I know of whole groups of physicians who have been fired um, and replaced with nurse practitioners solely for financial reasons. And so you will see literature on some of the websites and they will literally say things like, oh, you know, nurse practitioners and doctors are the same. That is not true. We are not the same. We each have our own strengths. We each have our limitations and we just wanted to present, you know, just a piece of that information for you all tonight so that you can do your own research. I encourage you to, you know, get online, do some research, talk to um, your provider, make sure that you understand their limitations, make sure that you understand um, how much experience they have so that you know exactly who is treating you. So before we sign off, ladies, do, do any of you have any um, closing comments? I just wanted to say one thing. Um, I know one question y'all um, asked me before we actually started was, who should see, you know, midwives versus who should see your obstetrician? I think that's a really good question. So briefly, I'm just going to say that if you have a complicated medical history, if you have um, like risk factors and things like that, a middle level is just not who you want to see. And that is just the God honest truth. If you already know that you're high risk or if you already have um comorbidities. You're just not a normal, I'm a 22-year-old who just want to come in and have a physical exam or I have a cough or, you know, things like that. Then I wouldn't say go see a nurse practitioner or a physical um, physician assistant or even a midwife. And again, I just can't talk to my midwives enough. Like even, or even in our practice, we've made it very clear who they can and can't see. So my uh, midwives, um, they do see some gynecological patients, but they see regular old annual visits. You know, if you have severe pelvic pain, if you have abnormal bleeding, a midwife or a nurse practitioner is just not who you want to see because they, you know, some of those issues are very complex. And if they don't work them up the right way. So if a 55-year-old postmenopausal woman comes in and she's just like, oh, I just started my period. And if someone doesn't know that a postmenopausal woman restarting her period or having a double period, as some of um, you know, um, my you know patients will say, they don't know that. Oh my God, this person needs to have an EMB. We need to figure out what is causing this postmenopausal bleeding. You know, does she have uterine cancer? You know, so it's just like certain things in our head that we just do very quickly. So I will say that, you know, if you're a high risk patient, if you have a whole bunch of issues you know, you can actually, you know, lose your life going to see someone that um, doesn't have as much training or really and truly waste your time. And the third thing is you can waste your money because if people don't know to how to quickly, if you need to see a specialist to send you to the specialist, they ain't gonna see the 50 million specialists. They got 50 million co-pays. There's gonna waste your gas. There's gonna waste your time. You're gonna miss time off work. You might be laid up in the hospital for no reason, things like that, which I've had patients, you know, they come in and they're like, you know, I didn't saw an endocrinologist. I've already seen this person, that person, that person. All these people have co-pays. And by the time they get to me, which is who they probably should have saw first, they now got another co-pay, but I'm getting cussed out. They're like, why are you paying all these co-pays? 
And I'm like, well, if you would have saw me the first time, you wouldn't be now, you know, doing your fifth copay. You wouldn't be wasting another day out of work. So I would definitely say that, you know, if you're a complex person, going to see someone who doesn't even have medical training, because like someone said, nurse practitioners are taught nursing. They are not taught medicine. Do not let them fool you into thinking they are taught medicine. They are taught nurses. These are literally nurses, nurses who then went to nurse practitioner school. And if you go on there, y'all got to research, look at their curriculum, see what their curriculum is. And a lot of it is not um, pathophysiology at all. It's, you know, management of like business management, clinical stuff. Like it has nothing to do with actual clinical hands on patient learning. So that's the, you know, the tidbit that I want to give that, you know, everybody ain't meant to go to everybody. Sometimes you just need to see a physician, period. Period. With a T on the end. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, end this. Again, we want to thank you all for listening to The Real Rx. If you have not already subscribed, please stop waiting. Go ahead and subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss new episodes as soon as they drop every thursday a new episode of the real rx will be in your favorite podcast app so go ahead and do that tell your friends about us tell your family members we are you know we're just really excited about what we're doing and you know we are out here hoping that we are making a difference and you know we want to have some fun with you all i know we haven't done facebook live i promise we will be back at some point um periodically to do facebook live but for those of you who have missed us on Facebook Live, you know, we are still on social media. So feel free to check us out on Facebook and on Instagram at The Real RX. And what we would love for you all to do is when you are listening to this episode or previous episodes, take a screenshot on your phone or on your tablet and post it on Facebook or Instagram and tag us at The Real RX Media. And we will be sure to repost and to share and to feature you on our social media page. But we wanna show you some love. We wanna make sure that we are connecting with our podcast listeners because we appreciate you all so much. So on that note, we are going to say goodbye. Thanks again for listening to The Real Rx and we will see you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye y'all. You are not. <laughs> What?